one thing that I remember most from Dr. Houston was one day in the operating room. He said, have you ever heard a knee suck? And I kind of drew back and said, I don't know what you're talking about. So he opened a little hole in the knee and then flexed and extended the knee. Uh, after This was while I was closing. And the wound actually sucked. So if you know the wound's going to suck in air, then it's going to suck in bacteria if your skin closure is too loose. So mm. that's that's really important to pay attention to those those kind of things. That's how you keep your infection rate down. If you've ever asked yourself, how can I get better clinical outcomes for my patients? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Rehab Links Secrets to Success podcast, where I will be interviewing experts and teaching you how to access the best technologies, strategies, resources, and solutions so you can get the best outcomes that your patients deserve. Thanks for joining me. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Rehab Links Secrets to Success podcast. I'm Lisa Chase, your host. And today I have a very special guest. I've been very excited to have him on the podcast, Dr. Stan Longenecker from Jacksonville. Welcome, Stan. I'm very pleased to be here with you. This is so much fun because you and I, I was thinking about, we met, I think, back in like 1996. So we have known each other a very long time. I had just moved to Jacksonville and I was working at um, St. Vincent's and you and I met there. You are uh, you know, board certified orthopedic surgeon and I had seen several of your patients and you were doing a clinic, a regular clinic weekly, right? That um, I started helping with. And that's when you and I really kind of got to know each other and got to work, you know, more closely together. So it is fun to kind of be reunited and to to sit and have a chat with you. It's really good to see you too. And you Aww. have aged a day. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm trying, <laughs> trying to fight the clock. <laughs> well, let's talk, let's um just educate our listeners a little bit about our background. I mean, you are um, you know, obviously an orthopedic surgeon and have worked many, many years treating a variety of orthopedic injuries, but maybe just give our listeners a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing today. Okay, well, I started out in school as an engineering student and finished up that and went to medical school. And quite frankly, I thought I was going to go into OBGYN until I had a rotation in orthopedics. And right then and there, I knew that was going to be home. Ah. There, I ended up doing a residency. I mean, I had to do an internship in general surgery to get into any program. And the United States Navy had paid for some of my schooling, so they put me on a ship for a couple of years. That was a ball. I enjoyed that. Uh, came back, to got the Tulane, and again, I graduated from Tulane Engineering. I should have said that. Uh, and went on to Tulane Orthopedic Residency. Uh, I finished that, and the Navy said, yeah, we really need you in Okinawa. So I went over to Okinawa, where I took care of 80,000 Marines and 40,000 Air Force. And wow. I was the only orthopedic surgeon. It was busy. Oh, we, yeah. We, we were doing 20, 25 cases on a, on a Wednesday. It was just a, wow. it was a anyway, yeah. 
finished that and went, got back and did a fellowship with Jack Houston in Columbus, Georgia. Now, Dr. Houston, H-U-G-H-S-T-O-N, yeah. uh, was the grandfather of sports medicine. That's really where I was headed. And the clinic that you and I worked in was a sports medicine clinic. And you were the, the genius behind the back problems that we had. <laughs> I always respected you because you could take somebody that was just about ready to get the knife and you go to work on them, they get well. I learned a lot from that. And wow. I came to respect you tremendously because of that. And I've sent you patients over the years. There were friends of mine that were thinking about surgery and you got them better. And yep. Maybe now because I'm not as busy as I used to be. Uh, chemotherapy knocked my hands out and my feet out so I can't operate. And then I'm just seeing patients in the office. And yeah, I'm trying to find good places for them. And my sports medicine clinic kind of morphed a different direction because of my engineering degree. I got involved in implant design and have been fortunate to be on the team of three different implants that are tremendously successful. And that bought the farm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, the farm raises hay in Kentucky now. Yeah. And so I spent some time up there. I used to be able to fly my plane up there, which was really nice. But yeah, I don't trust myself anymore with having gone through what I've gone through. Right. Anyway, here we are today. I'm still seeing patients, uh, still doing conservative orthopedic care. Uh, I don't or anywhere near as hard as I used to. And actually, I've morphed into a, a medical legal business as well. So that's okay. it in a nutshell. Well, yeah. Well, I always, you know, I always love, you know, working side by side because we could kind of together collaborate and figure out what was best for the patient. And certainly, you know, when they needed, you know, surgery or other interventions that were outside the, you know, scope of PT, uh, your patients always did fantastic, you know, so I really would like to, you know, there's different listeners that might be tuning in. Some might be therapists, some might be physicians, right? And so I think, you know, you had such great outcomes as a surgeon, and I know your infection rate was far superior, you know, of patients not getting an infection. What was it? One in 6,000 versus one in a hundred uh, that- well, that, that happened one in, in 8,500 total joints. <laughs> yeah. That's, so that's, that's incredible. That's incredible because you see, obviously it's so, you know, dangerous and the things that happen with infections, but so I'd like you to kind of talk about how you as a, as an orthopedic surgeon got such great outcomes and mitigated some of those, you know, risks, because I think that is super important. Obviously, getting good outcomes starts with a good surgery and, uh, and, and mitigating the, the different side effects that can happen, like having an infection. Well, I think the first thing I, I did was to emulate somebody that didn't have infections. And so it wasn't that I came up with a, a scheme that... Uh, all my own. No, it was a matter of working with a man, Dr. Houston, who didn't have infections. Mm. And pay attention to his technique. Hang on, adjust the position. My back is talking to me. Uh, <clears throat> I paid attention to his technique and how, how did he prepare that patient for surgery? What did he do in the days before? Uh, how did he, he would actually get the patients a little bit edgy 
and for that reason, they're they're keyed up to do a little better than the patient who wasn't ready to go. If you think it in athletic terms, then I, that was a sports medicine fellowship. He, when you get a, a team ready to go on the field, you get them really worked up. Well, you do that with a patient, and they do better. It's a little trick, and, you know. You get them a little edgy, and they do better in surgery. They do better after surgery. Um, that's part of it. Part of it was the way you prep the skin. That that was very important. Uh, using betadine instead of all these other fancy stuff they came out that said would be reduce my infection rate, and I never used it because it it didn't have an infection rate. Uh -huh. uh, and then it's surgical technique. How do you take that? How do you care for that soft tissue? Do you abuse it like one of my former partners did with a bovie? And he had a tremendously high infection rate because he burned his way in instead of cut. And if you keep your lines clean, you stay in the, the right planes, the, the wounds heal so much faster. And uh, surgeons that pay attention to that, they have lower infection rates. Don't wow. be in a hurry. That's another thing. I've seen surgeons get where they just wanted to push, 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 and they have five, eight percent infection rates because they were they're in too big a hurry. And then wound closure is tremendously important. Closing all the layers and not just trying to put two layer closures. It's, it, you get into the knee, you you don't realize it, but there's four layers of skin you got to close. Maybe four layers. And if you pay attention to all that stuff, then one thing happens, your wounds look great because they're real thin. And two, you don't get infections. You, you seal that place off. Even if it builds up blood underneath the skin, bacteria don't go through that incision to get to that blood. And people don't understand that. I think one thing that I remember most from Dr. Houston was one day at the operating room. He said, have you ever heard a knee suck? And I kind of drew back and said, I don't know what you're talking about. So he opened a little hole in the knee and then flexed and extended the knee. Uh, after this was while I was closing. And the wound actually sucked. So if you know the wound's going to suck in air, then it's going to suck in bacteria if your skin closure is too loose. So mm -hmm. that's that's really important to pay attention to those, those kind of things. That's how you keep your infection rate down. Wow, that's great. And I imagine the scar is so much better as well, right? When you're yeah. when you're working on all those layers versus you're just, you know, hitting just the the cop the top couple layers, then those are when, you know, infections um obviously and scars uh are a problem. You know, and and I know I remember I sent you a patient that I had seen um because I think the other thing not necessarily that this has to do with um infection but when it came to total joints you also took the time to figure out the correct size and I've had patients that have had the wrong size prosthesis put in uh the implant and that became a huge issue so talk to and, that a little bit well I'll talk to you one other point of one of the knees we designed Five of us had been bugging this company for oh, five or six years saying there's a difference between men and women. We're having trouble with women complaining about their knees because to get it to fit from front to back, it had to be a little too wide. And if you made it narrow enough, you often notch the femur, and then that had a high risk of, of fracture. I actually had one, one girl fracture. Um, 
and uh, that was a disaster. Uh, regardless, we then came up with the concept of a gendered knee. And Christine Mafouch studied 800 cadavers, 400 female, 400 male, and created a plot. We found out the women were taller front to back and narrower inside to outside than the males. So that let us create a series of prostheses that fit women better. And all of a sudden, those achy pains that we've been seeing in the women went away. Mm. That knee, yeah. that knee, that knee paid for the farm. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, but it's it, so critical. I mean, and I still see it today. You know where? Because uh, what happened? The other manufacturers came out with half sizes to try and come up with to try and compete with that. Mm. Sizes don't work. Don't don't do the job. Not yeah. only was the not only was the knee different front to back, but the Q angle, which you know well. Yep. But I'm not going to try and explain that. That's the okay. Q angle was greater in the, in the gender knee because the woman's right. pelvis is wider and then it right. comes down, narrows in on the knee. That creates a greater angle at the knee. Yes. So what would you say to a patient who was looking or even a therapist who's maybe trying to guide a patient Um of of what they should be looking for in a surgeon and what maybe questions they should be asking so they make sure a they find the right surgeon and two that they're going to get the right prosthesis and obviously um you know a decrease of risk that happen with surgery well now i'm going to get one more thing that i didn't mention and why my infection rate was so low and it's because i was using implants where the bone literally grew into the implant and that's a living interface. Yeah. Uh, uh, that we call them bone and growth processes, or that's what I call them. Uh, but the, the benefit of that is that where debris does not penetrate that living interface because mm. it's like that. Cemented interfaces are dead from the day you put them in. So they're good for 20 years and sometimes more. But I just saw a patient yesterday, it was 28 years down the line, it looked brand new. Brand mm. new. Wow. So, so they last longer. Oh, all you ever have to do, if, if anything goes wrong with the plastic, you just put a new piece of plastic in and you got a, you got a brand new knee again. Because it does not get through that, that it does not get through that uh, bone ingrowth surface. And I've got almost 30 year patients now where I see no sign of penetration of the implant. And then I would imagine that the infection rate is lower too, because that's another place that you see an infection is around the implant, right? And then you got to take the implant out, correct? No, not with a bone growth knee. You can, you can treat it just like a regular knee and it, it, you can wash it out and, and close it back up. And most of the time, about 90% of the time, you clear the infection. Right. Uh, but if you don't do that approach. Then you, you may have to pull the implant. Right. There's right. some studies trying to show that you, you can you can do a one stage train uh, where you, it, it's incredible. That's too technical for this discussion. <laughs> okay, so all right, so that that I mean, obviously, yes, having you know the type of implant that you're using and how you're putting it, you know, in makes a huge difference. So talk about you know, what you would recommend to a patient and what they should be kind of looking for in a surgeon and questions they may, that they may want to ask before they, you know, go under the knife. 
Don't be afraid to ask him his infection rate. And ask the hospital what his infection rate is, the place mm. he's working. They'll tell you. Uh, so the surgeon might get a little upset that you ask him. It wouldn't bother me because I've got a really good answer. Uh, right. Uh, ask that. Ask if, if you're if you're 60 or below, you want to definitely consider a bone and growth implant because you we're now women are now living to be 79 average. So you need an implant that will go that long. And somebody like my wife's probably going to make a hundred. Uh, <laughs> seriously, her mama was hundred too when she died. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then you you want that to last. So that's a great point. Yeah. Now me, I'm not quite sure I'm going to go that far, but I've already had my knee replacement, my hip replacement, my shoulder replacement. <laughs> You're the bionic man, they're man. They're all bone and growth. <laughs> and so does that go with the shoulder too? Because I know the shoulder is not as, you know, the outcomes in the in the past, right? Before like reverse shoulders and maybe this technique. Um, they never did really well. They never got a ton of function out of them, but I have seen that improve over the years. It has improved dramatically if you use a good implant. Okay. If it, you know the, the 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 reverses when they came out solved a huge problem for us because when the patients had a massive rotator cuff tear and arthritis, we had no solution for it until the reverses came out. And the first reverses did not do well because they were cemented. And they got loose real quick with a lot of stress on those prostheses. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, once we got the bone and growth on on the reverses, it changed the world. They're very very sound prostheses, and I did a I had to do one that was he was about forty when I did him, and I I was very cautious in my rehab with that. He comes in at three weeks post op and sticks his arm up in the air like this, and I go, "Whoa, slow down!" He did great. <laughs> It did great. So they could get real emotion, but a lot of it, the time, by the time we get to them, they're older, they've lost a lot of muscle, and it's tough for them to get that back after, after a surgery. Yeah, but they definitely do so much better than they used to. I mean, like I said, I remember when you, you couldn't even get to 90 degrees, you usually got maybe 80. You're lucky if you got 90 you know, but now, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing them with a lot better function. So, um, you know, that's great that's that the technique. Yeah, he, he, uh, I did both his shoulders, and he ended up with full range of motion. He could lift 100 pounds over his head. And wow. Then, as a result of that, he wore the plastic out overnight. And I ended up having to go back and put new plastic, and he destroyed that. So I ended up putting reverses in. And now he's got full range of motion with his reverse. He was in my office about a month ago for a problem with his hip. But it's just a matter of how you know a guy that's in good physical condition when he wears out his shoulder is going to get a lot better outcome. Yeah, great. And then, so obviously, infection rate's important, and then the type of prosthesis and the technique that they're using, right, um, yeah. is going to be important. And then, when it comes to sizing, um, the best questions to ask for that um is it just based on what the surgeon's using yes i mean in hips it's pretty straightforward then you want to find out if he's using an anterior approach or posterior approach uh if he's doing anteriors and has done a bunch of they get well incredibly fast in two and three weeks they're walking without a cane or, or crutches or anything uh, 
I went back and after my hip replacement, which by the way is an implant that I have total control over the design of. Uh, I was in the operating room operating two weeks later. Wow. Yeah. That's and no pain. Wow. I never had any pain after surgery. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. And it's a bone and growth implant. Right. So that obviously, yeah, that's, that's a big, that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah. Okay. So a matter of how, it, how well it fits. Uh, we tried to go short of stem as we could. The FDA wouldn't let us go any shorter than 83 millimeters. Oh, well, uh, that's what we, that's what we designed around. And why did I want it short? So my incisions would be smaller and less exposure. The less uh, exposure you have, the, the, the less chance of infection. Right. Okay. Does the prosthesis have like a, like obviously not all physicians are using that particular, right, type of Correct. prosthesis. So um, is there a particular, I guess, yeah. Is there a name or something that they could ask or is there a database where they can go, hey, these physicians are using... If you're talking hips, it's Don Joy Orthopedics. Uh, if you're talking knees, it's Zimmer. No, yeah, Zimmer, I'm sorry. But, or Total Joint actually is the newest one. We created a new company because Zimmer was messing with us, uh, the design team. So we created a new company, Total Joint Orthopedics, and that we're using all the design principles we'd used way back. I don't know if you remember this, Lisa. I did a study for... Uh, Zimmer when, when we were with them and I took 70 of my patients and we took them with a C-arm moving with the patient as they walked so you're mm -hmm. getting a lot of data on how that knee's moving then we had as they squatted we had we, well, we checked it again and when they knelt on it we checked it and what that gave us was the information we needed to change the radius of curvatures in the knee to get the high flex knees that we can see now and Mm. All of a sudden, we're getting 175 degrees flexion. What? Yeah. But on, I mean, heel hitting your butt. Wow. So those knees, that that does that information gave us the ability to do a high flex knee. Wow, that's incredible. Mid stance, so. Now, wow. one of the, early, the early high flex designs were unstable in mid stance, and by looking at the range, looking at the data that we, I left something out of that. Um, oh my, COVID brain is hitting. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was fine after the first COVID round, but the second one nailed me. Yeah, um, I know it's tough. Flying, um, airplanes be too fast. But, or COVID brain. Uh, the, and it, the head of engineering up at the University of Tennessee had a program where he took that uh, three that dimensional data we've sent him uh, and cranked it into three dimensions so you could actually see the knee move as it went through walking and as it went into flexion. And again, that's how we got the data to to uh, to uh, create the high flex knee. High flex knee. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. That's, that's amazing. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a lot of flexion out of that knee. <laughs> well, immediately other companies got a hold of that knee and copied it. So it's, it's good for about two, three years. So 
before everybody got a hold of that data. Right, right. Well, at least maybe now it's more available, but well, that's, yeah, that's really remarkable. Yeah, I always, I always knew you had, you had great outcomes when it came to surgery. So, um, but you know, we never really like got into some of the details and I know things have evolved since I've, you know, since I've worked that, that closely with you. So, um, obviously you've worked, obviously you do the surgery and then they oftentimes will either go to rehab or, you know, um, you know, you'll, you'll kind of be involved in that process. So let's talk about, obviously it starts with, you know, no infection, good implant, you know, good technique, and then, you know, the recovery process. So talk a bit about how you get great outcomes and where therapy may play a role in those outcomes. Well, I don't know if you remember, but the hardest thing I had was slowing therapists down. Yep. Because they wanted, they wanted to push my knees hard, and I didn't want them to push hard on those knees because they were bone and growth. And if you if you wiggle them too hard and put too much stress on them, you can loosen the you can loosen the implant right off the get go, and then you got a failure. So I would I was holding them back from trying to overflex my knees, and yet I still got great outcomes. How did I do that? Because we spent a lot of time with that leg up in the air. We spent a lot of time with ice on it. I, I strongly encourage people to use uh, ice machines that pump cold water over a pad. So that kept, that that keeps your swelling down. If you keep your swelling down, then you don't have to fight to get motion. And a patient showed me an interesting trick on total knees, and I used it from that day on. He told me how he got his motions. He lied down flex his hip to 90 degrees and let the weight of gravity pull his foot down. Yeah. And that would always get a little bit better each day without any pushing. Yes. That, that made all the sense in the world to me. So from that day on, I used that technique. And that, that really made a difference in patients, how, how much they hurt. Uh, I started getting patients with no pain in, in the rehab. And I, that, I really like that. That's a great I technique. I use that a lot because to try to do a heel slide and pull it towards you, it just hurts too much. But if you just yep. let gravity, you know, take its course, it's more gentle on the knee and it works better. So, yeah. So you picked that up without me? You figured it out? I did. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great, that's a great trick, especially when they come in, you know, I'm obviously a cash-based practice, so I don't always see the immediate post-op knees. Uh, they'll go have therapy and then because they know about us, they, they complement with what we do and I'll see them and they'll come in and they'll be like, you know, oh, I'm pushing my knee and it's really hurting. And I just, I just adjust just that one thing and use some of the technologies that we have, but that makes a big difference. For sure. So, yeah. So, you know, um, so not pushing. So we've, got the, we've got the surgery down. We've got the implant down. We've got the early post-op. And then you have to have the right therapist. Yep. In, in Jacksonville, I use five therapists. That's it. Yeah. If I can't get my patients to them, I'm not happy. Yeah. And nor are my patients because they'll get someplace else and they just go crazy with them and do all kinds of stupid stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true, I think. And, you know, and, and for me as a therapist, if I'm working with somebody and I realize, okay, they need to have a surgery, then finding the right surgeon 
is critical because I've seen that too. Surgery's gone wrong in all sorts of different ways. So I think it it's a it's a nice symbiotic relationship. And you and I always had that when I was in, you know, Jacksonville. And then, you know, like you said, you sent several people to me, you know, that were trying to avoid surgery, which is always um, you know, a great outcome when we can, you know, avoid that um as long as possible. But, you know, having the right therapist uh and having the right surgeon and, you know, and then working together, I think is 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 critical, having that relationship. Uh, let me just put that uh, one thing out about therapists. When I send somebody to a therapist, I want that therapist to be one-on-one with them. Yes. And that's hard to find because they don't make enough money, but they get results. Yep. But there are companies that, that are out there and they'll have one therapist working with six or seven people at a time. Yep. And you don't get that TLC that you were looking for when that happens. Well, and you and you and you catch things, right? Just like you said, your preparation, all the things that you do to prepare that that patient for surgery and the things that you do during surgery is taking your time, right? And so whether you're doing surgery in a rush or you're taking a history or doing rehab in a rush, that's going to impact, you know, the outcomes. And I feel blessed that I was able to start a practice where, you know, now I can spend that time with patients and not be dictated, you know, by the insurance as to what they're going to pay me for my time or for limiting me from being able to treat the whole person as well. Yep. That's, that's, that's hard to find these days. I know. It really is. And yeah, as it is hard to find a surgeon who, you know, is going to be as meticulous as, you know, you know, you have been, um, you know, in your surgeries for sure. And well, you, that coin is you, you have to be willing to sit and talk with patients and listen to them. Yes. You need a surgeon that's going to do that, not be walking out the doors he walked in. Yes. And that is so hard to find. I hear, and more and more, not just with surgeons, with any physician, I hear that from patients, you know, and things then get missed or they just get shuffled off to one person or another person because they didn't really take the time to ask the questions. Listen, I always say the mysteries in the history, you ask the right question and the patient will tell you what you need to know. 90% of the time, they'll tell you the diagnosis without you having to examine them. Yep. That's exactly true. That's what I say all the time is just ask the right questions. And then your, your exam just confirms your hypothesis from talking to the patient. Or you just sit back and listen to them. Yeah. They'll, they'll tell you the story. Yeah, absolutely. They want to tell the story, you know, and if you just listen, you know, um, I think then, you know, they feel cared for and they know that they're in good hands. So I don't know what you're, what you're seeing, but the new generation of physicians coming out is a different animal. They're number driven. They they have less tendency to listen. Uh, drives me crazy because I get people in here that have been misdiagnosed, and uh, it all it had to do was listen to that patient talk, and they would have gotten yeah. the correct diagnosis. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think it's that's across the board, physicians, therapists. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate and it's a little scary what's happening, you know, in the medical industry. So, you know, hopefully there's an, enough of us, you know, out there that can, you know, provide that, you know, that kind of time 
um, you know, so well, we can get the outcomes. I bet you know the local physicians that you want your patients to go to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is just the same for me. I know that yep. the therapists want my patients to go to. That's exactly right. And that, and I work hard to try to, you know, have those relationships and really get to know the physicians that I know get great outcomes. And then if I need to reach out to them, then I'm going to hear from their office, um, you know, because that's the other thing. If something does go wrong or you got a question, uh, you know, you want to be able to have that, you know, that line of communication, which, you know, you and I always had, which was great. And I have with all the people I refer to. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. You need that for sure. Search drive from someplace else. I just pinch my nose and hope it doesn't stink too bad. <laughs> well, is there anything else that um, our, you know, that your particular audience, you know, may uh, appreciate any other tips or things that you'd like to share? I'm thinking through, we've kind of gone through a progression here. Um, If somebody walks out of the office within the first five minutes, don't think about staying in that surgical office. Think about looking around a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, don't be afraid to look, you know? The whole time. They're going to do that to you the whole time. You're going to have questions and they won't be there to answer. Yeah. They're going to be on their way to the next patient. I know one doctor, orthopedic surgeon, that sees 80 patients in one day. Oof. 80. That's terrible. Uh, you know, there's, there's no time for that. No. For that, and he's relying on his mid levels to to explain things. Yeah, so, and you know, and that 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 I've seen that, and it that doesn't, you know, that absolutely that absolutely does not work for sure. I know another one. Uh, we have a group that's in competition here. And they, one doctor may have four to five physician assistants working with him. Uh, so you see that physician assistant often the first time. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing you see is a physician assistant and maybe a different one. Yep. And then maybe right before surgery, you see the doctor. I actually had one, what I call terrifying experience, where I'm walking through the, the holding area. And this patient, this patient calls out to me, Dr. Lonecker, Dr. Lonecker. I looked at her and said, what are you doing here? Oh, this doctor is going to do my knee, but I've never met him. What? You made your bed, lady. I'm not here to help you on that one. Uh, but she had been, she had, I'd been carrying her as a patient for four or five years, conservative management, before she got her total knee. And at the last minute, she switched. Wow. I had that happen with, with an elderly gentleman, too. And he ended up with a bad outcome. And he he tucked his tail between his legs, came back to me. I figured out what was wrong, fixed it. And he hasn't gone anywhere since. But it's a shame when you see that happen. It, it is. But, you know, it, you know, when people show you who they are the first time, believe them. And so I think that's that's really important. If you go in and you have that kind of experience right from the get-go, a lot of times patients are afraid to question a physician you know, to go seeking out another opinion. But, you know, if, if they're not going to give you the time of day on the first visit, or you're not going to actually meet the physician who's doing your surgery and be able to ask them questions, 
then um, you got to keep looking. I think that was good advice. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Very good advice. Well, this has been super fun. If there is there anything else that you would like to share? I mean, these have all been amazing tips and really great information, I think, for any therapist, uh, physician, or patient who's listening. Well, I think we've covered quite a gamut here, Dennis. We sure well, have. It sure is good to see you again. It's so good to see you. And thank you so very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, until next time, keep getting great outcomes. Well, I'm not operating anymore, so I have to well, rely on the people I refer to. That's okay. You still get great outcomes with your patients because you pay attention, you listen, and then you help find the right surgeon if they do, I'm sure, need surgery. But it does start with listening and, and doing a good exam and figuring out what it is the patient needs. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking of this one work comp guy I've got right now. That uh, He is a year out from a major contusion to his knee, and he was shuffled around a they never paid him. Uh, he he was literally probably 50% of his strength that he had before. And he thought it was because there was something wrong with his knee. Problem was, he, was, he wasn't a mover. And movers get well. Yeah. You know that. Yep. And the, the ones that dawdle around, they don't get well. Mm -hmm. I finally got him a therapist. He had had some time with therapist, but they did the little rule this, a little that, and right. didn't really after him to get him moving. Well, he, it's taken three and a half months, but we've got him almost back to work. And he was a cripple before. Yeah, that, that's a population, the work comp, that unfortunately gets the raw end of the deal, right? Because they just automatically get put into this category of, oh, you know, they're work comp, they're not, you know, they're just trying to ride the system and they just need good care like everybody most, else. Most work comp patients want to get back to work. Yeah, just, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, so true. The problem is they have physicians out there that are ready to rubber stamp them. He was actually told that he was off work the day he went, the first time he saw the physician. The next day, the physician put him back to full duty. Mm. I don't get it. I know. I don't either. But, well, again, thank you so much. I appreciate all your time. And I hope that we can talk again soon. Let me know. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Rehab Link's Secrets to Success. If you haven't already, please share this out so that more people can get access to Rehab Link's Secrets to Success. Now, if you would like to work with us and connect with my team, please go to www.rehablinksystems.com where you can find our free tools, online trainings, and many resources to help you get great clinical outcomes. We look forward to serving you. Until next time.